This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. With the next round of talks expected to start at NAFTA in just a little while, uh, they're starting to fire volleys back and forth. You know, they had the meeting down in uh, Mexico, and uh, they seem to uh, get a lot of issues on the table. Uh, and now, all of a sudden, another wild card from the U.S. delegation, which says that uh, they would like to see a sunset clause that could terminate the agreement after only five years. Now, that's a different twist. Uh, joining us to talk about this here in studio, Marvin Ryder, of course, uh, from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. How are you doing this morning? I am fine, thank you, Bill. You're dressing like it's still summer. Good for you. <laughs> it is still summer. It's going to be 25 today, so I'm holding on to it until September 21st. Which is, well, yeah, this is the last weekend of summer, so let's enjoy this while we can. Exactly. Uh, talk to me about this idea. This is Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary down in the States, that floated this idea. Uh, which I assume is coming from uh, from you know his lips, but it's Donald Trump's idea, I would imagine. A sunset clause on a trade agreement, really? So if you don't mind, I'm just going to go back and yeah. then we'll go forward. So NAFTA negotiations began. The first round was held in Washington, and then three weeks later they met in Mexico City for, I think it was four days. Now they're going to come to Ottawa next weekend, not the current weekend coming up, but the next weekend, the 22nd, 23rd, 24th, 25th. The way they've been handling the negotiation, and I'm going to make it sound like I've been sitting in the room. I haven't, but I have some good sources that say, so the three parties, if you can imagine three parties at a triangular table, they will table certain things, and if they think they can get an agreement quickly, they accept it. If they think, oh, wait, you know, that's kind of controversial, Mexico, or look, the United States, that's controversial. Let's put that over here in another pile. We'll call it the parking lot. We'll come back to that in the future. So they've been making great progress on those things they can easily agree on, but of like what to have for lunch? Yes. <laughs> but as you can imagine, there are a few things piling up in the parking lot. And this one, the idea of the sunset clause, has been floated and has already found its way to the parking lot. Now, the, a sunset clause, the best way I can explain it to your listeners is to imagine that you're going to get married. But instead of uh, the, the minister saying, until death do you part, it is until five years from now when one side or the other agree to continue the agreement. In other words, we're going to have a five-year renewable agreement. Oh, it could go on for life, but every five years you've got to redo your vows and say, I still love you and I still want to carry on. It would be highly unusual in any trade agreement. I am not aware of any trade agreement signed by Canada, the United States, Mexico, and not just between them, but between anyone else in the world that this kind of an agreement uh, is in place. And the reason why you don't have a sunset clause is that you are fundamentally changing the economic makeup of, of a country, or in this case, North America. In other words, if you've made a commitment to free trade, then Everything you do, all, all your rules and regulations embrace that concept. For instance, take, take our customs. You know, when I come back across the border from the United States, then if it's a world of free trade, how I'm going to be charged for goods I buy and my limits are all predicated on the fact that we believe in freer trade. If suddenly that agreement's terminated, and that's the whole thing when we say to Donald Trump, let's rip up NAFTA, well, if you suddenly rip it up, then there's a whole lot of other laws that then would have to be changed. So if we're going to go down this road, Canada and Mexico has have instantly reacted to the idea of a, a sunset clause and said it's a non-starter. We're not interested in this. So it's made its way to the parking lot. I suspect what's going to happen in the parking lot, we're going to get into some good old-fashioned horse trading. So we'll give you a little something here if you take something off there. And if you do this here, we'll take something off there. And that's those will be the last things they talk about. That could be well into December before anything's resolved there. But but Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, and for that matter, Lighthizer, who's the, the lead negotiator right. for the U.S., this is not their first rodeo. I mean, no. they, why would they even 
even bring something like this up? I mean, that's a that's a non-starter in the business world, isn't it? Um, let me give you two different explanations for this. Uh, yes, it's usually a non-starter in the business world, but we have this nice gentleman by the name of Trump who's president, yeah, I've and, heard of him. and this is not the uh, standard presidency anymore. He's a different kind of president, and he does a different style of negotiations. The second thing I would tell you, Bill, is that in negotiations, you occasionally put forward something that you know you're going to lose to get something that you want instead. So in other words, it'd be like me saying to you, Bill, uh, uh, you know, I want $10,000 to do something. You say, oh, well, Marvin, no way I'm going to give you 10000 I said, well, how about 1000 then? You say, well, good, 1000 I dodged a bullet. I didn't have to give you that extra $9,000. But had I asked for the $1,000 to begin with, you would have said no to that. Sure, yeah. So sometimes you put somewhat outrageous proposals on the table to soften up the negotiations so that when you put a more reasonable thing on the table, that will be a Uh, I don't know what the more reasonable thing is, but I think, A, Donald Trump said put that out there, and so they felt obligated to do so. But I also think they're quite willing to remove it in favor of something else. But I don't know what that something else will be. But when you look at, and and I understand he's a a different animal altogether, the way Trump is approaching a lot of stuff, but... And that's obviously having an impact on what's going on. But there are certain parameters uh, when, you, when you're setting up a deal. And I don't care if it's buying real estate like he says he does all the time or, or a trade agreement like this. Uh, but they now they're talking about putting a sunset clause in. Uh, they don't want to have dispute resolution. I mean, what kind of a trade deal with, with no dispute resolution? Like, we'll arbitrarily decide whether we think it's right or wrong. Uh, this, this is not a negotiation at all. This is like a, a, a manifesto that this, they're putting forward right now and simply saying it's going to be our way or the highway. Well, again, that is very consistent with the way Donald Trump tends to negotiate. He does blow into a room when he does these trade deals and says, here's what I want. You'd better agree to it or else you don't get a deal with Donald Trump. And you know you want a deal with Donald Trump. Canada and Mexico, I think, have been doing a wonderful job in these negotiations. They are not reacting. They're not taking the bait. They're not going into these negotiations all upset. And, and, and Donald is not getting them off the game. That's another thing of his, another trademark of his negotiating style is to get you off your game, to suddenly get playing the game his way rather than the way that you want to do it. Uh, and, I, and he does this. He just he blows into rooms and he drops outrageous things and then runs out of the room and he wants you to follow him. He wants you to go chase him. Oh, Mr. Trump, don't leave, don't leave. We'll give you some thing. And we're not doing that. So uh, I, I have some sympathy for Wilbur Ross and Mr. Lighthizer. I, I'm sure they've never negotiated a trade deal with this kind of a, a boss before, with this kind of a, a person observing what's going on. Um, and I, frankly, I don't think they've begun this negotiation, uh, the two of them, uh, Ross and Lighthizer, thinking that NAFTA was such an awful deal. I know they've had to say it was an awful deal, but actually it's been good for all three countries. It is time to modernize the deal. That's why we've taken the approach that we're happy to talk about NAFTA 2.0. And, and frankly, I think they realize that there are things that should be in the deal that aren't. But at the same time that they're trying to negotiate a deal in sort of the normal way, they have an abnormal president who they have to report to, and, and thus you, you're forced to do some of these things. At this point, I would tell everybody, don't react. Um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was one, one of, not the last, but one of the last big deals Canada was involved in, took five years of negotiations. Uh, 
although we and the United States and Mexico would like to see this deal done by January of 2018, that would be one of the fastest international trade deals in history, to have it done start to finish in four and a half, five months. So I suspect we're going to see a lot of this drama. We'll see some high points. I tell you, Bill, right now, I don't know when it's going to happen, but at some point someone's going to march out whether it happens in Ottawa or Washington, one delegation is going to pack it. Well, if that's the way you feel about it, I'm leaving. And that's all part of the drama and the melodrama that's part of these negotiations. Well, is the time frame uh, unrealistic then? I mean, uh, I, I get the fact that, okay, this is not starting from square one because there's an existing deal. Uh, Trump's words, remember when the prime minister yep. was down in Washington, was tweak. Uh, clearly, they don't want to <laughs> tweak this. Uh, they want to redesign the whole thing right now. Can they get that done by January? Well, see, that's, that's the interesting problem we have is we really don't know what the Americans want. I'm laughing because uh, if, you, if you want to start with a blank piece of paper, there is no way you could have this kind of a trade deal done in five months. There's just no way starting with a blank piece of paper. So it's got to be some variation on tweaking. If it is some variation on tweaking, yes, we could have it done in January. And, and Bill, I mentioned Trans-Pacific Partnership for a reason. It, we, Canada, and for that matter, Mexico, had not really planned on NAFTA 2.0. What was supposed to happen was that the Trans-Pacific Partnership would be NAFTA 2.0. It would still involve trade between Canada, Mexico, and the United States, but it would add in Japan, Australia, New Zealand, these other countries, and then that would become the, the deal that was going to set the terms. Therefore, two things. You know, we weren't planning on NAFTA 2.0, but that's where we are now. But because we have this document that has many of the clauses in there, we could easily use those as templates and put them into a NAFTA 2.0. It is very doable if what we're doing is modernizing and updating the agreement. And, and I think when the dust settles on this, I think when the dust settles on this, that's what we're going to have. It's not going to be a brand new document, except in Donald Trump's mind, because he's going to have to go out to his base and sell it as, you know, thank God I've been president because this is the best deal we've ever signed. Right now, NAFTA's the worst deal ever. Donald will make it the best deal ever. If you uh, keep referring to the TPP, somebody in government's probably going to have to go around and read it now. because Everybody was against that deal, and, and I'll guarantee you, Marvin, probably half of them never even saw the document. They just said, well, everybody's making noise, so we're going to be opposed to this thing as well. The only, the only stumbling block I saw from the U.S. standpoint was copyright, which it was a big deal for an awful lot of them, but there's a lot of good stuff in that as well. But here's, here's the thing about Trump. And by the way, they were getting their way on that. Yeah. So, so I, I don't mean to slow you down, but this is such an important issue. Copyright in the United States is the life of an author plus 50 years. They in the United States have chosen to take it up to 75 years, but they wanted their partners to agree to that. Life of the author plus 75 years. Now, why? There's a gentleman by the name of Walt Disney who died in 1968. He's the creator of Mickey Mouse and all these other characters. You've got a multi-billion dollar company based on the copyrights owned by the Disney Corporation. Disney died in 68. Add 50 years. What year do you get? 2018. Yeah. That's next year. This is why the United States took it up to 75 years, and I don't think they're going to stop there. I think over time they'll take it to 100 because the whole value of that company is in the copyright. Now, Canada and most of the rest of the world were prepared to move in that direction. They were going to win on that. But, of course, to win on something meant they had to give up on something else. And, and I think had Obama, had we had a third term of Obama or maybe even a Hillary Clinton, 
uh, Clinton presidency, TPP would still have legs. Donald just walked into the office believing it was bad. I don't think he ever read it. Of course not. Just I think he believed it was bad, and therefore he just killed it first day so he could play to his base. But if he's the sort of guy, and it, clearly he seems to be the sort of guy, that wants to show strength, and, and mm-hmm. I'm the guy, I'm, I'm the, uh, the alpha in this room. Mm-hmm. When he floats ideas like this, like a sunset clause, or floats ideas like, no, I don't want any dispute resolution, and those end up not being in the deal, doesn't he run the risk of looking weak in front of his base? He does, if that's the way he spins it to his base. So whatever, let's just assume he doesn't get his dispute resolution, but there's another dispute resolution that we believe is fair. He will come out and find a way to say it. So Lighthizer, and for that matter, Wilbur Ross, their challenge is to make sure there are victories that they can give their boss and he can go out to his base. Mike Pence, uh, say what you will ever about Mike Pence. I think Mike Pence understands this intimately better than Donald Trump ever did. And one of the things he said is it's got to be a win-win-win deal. And he's absolutely right. All three partners have to be able to go back to their base and say, look at what we got. If Mexico goes back to their people, especially since next year, 2018, is an election year in Mexico, and says, well, folks, it was the best deal we could get, but we lost here, we lost here, we lost here, we lost here, that party's going to be turfed out of power. Sure everyone's going to have to find a victory. Yes, we gave up a little something here, but look what we got. In Canada's case, I know Christian Freeland has said supply management's not on the table. I think it will be. But if we give up a little something in supply management, look what we got over here, whatever that is, that will be the way they spin it. Yeah, and there's a number of things here, too. You've talked also, of course, about communications and tech and things like this. And uh, and that's got to be something that's in there, too. But it, it just seems, I understand this is high stakes, but it just seems as as if this idea of trying to negotiate in the media uh, is, is contrary to actually finding that consensus. Yes. So let me say that to you another way. TPP, five years of negotiations, but we had no idea what was going on. Other than the grip and grin, you know, at the start of the negotiations, you get the photograph, everyone's sitting around, maybe they were wearing a native costume in whatever country they were, so we get a picture of them, then all the press are escorted out of the room, the talks go on and quiet, and there's just a bland communique at the end of the five days when asked, well, we're making progress, and that's all you ever heard, until the deal was done. This president, who who has a fondness for tweeting, and tweeting it seems about anything, and at times what I would almost suggest are almost national secrets, he's prepared to put them out on Twitter. It, it is a different kind of negotiation. But note, it's just him doing it. It's not the other partner. So everyone else is treating this as normal and doing it, I think, correctly. I just, I just I hate to say this to you, but increasingly I have to ignore Donald Trump. I, I just don't think he's relevant in this. It's interesting. We've got about a minute left here. Uh, one more reference to, to, to the TPP. Uh, the timing stunk on that whole thing. It was just before the federal election here in Canada, and Stephen Harper wore that. Uh, they used that as a, as a club against him. Uh, it, it became a main part of the, uh, of the presidential election last year, too. Now, if these guys cut a deal in January or February, and it has to be ratified by all three countries, that's going to sneak into the midterm elections in yeah. the states and the Mexican election. So somebody's going to wear this. Well, yes. Yeah, so the call, but the whole question is then how, how will it come out? If they have a successful deal that all three parties can point to and say it's a good deal, we like it, and here's the reason why, it may not be a problem. If it's a deal where America wins and Canada and Mexico loses, then it's not going to fly at all. And and I can't believe, frankly, that Mexico will stay at the table. There, there's always this possibility if it does blow up, then we'll go back to bar, bipartisan deals. In other words, we'll have a deal with Mexico. Yeah. Mexico will have a deal with the United States. We'll have a deal with the United States. 
States. It'd be better if all three were at the table. But uh, just another quick note, Bill. So uh, we're having this round in Ottawa next weekend, and then three weeks later, back to Washington. Now, those are the last dates that have been announced. So we're going to have four rounds of negotiations. Is the the round in Ottawa the last round, or excuse me, the round in, Mexico, uh, in Washington the last round? No, but out of that, we're going to get a, a report card. Is a deal imminent? If it is, they'll announce two or three more rounds of negotiations leading to something they expect to sign. Or if there are deal breakers they don't think they can overcome, we're going to hear that. We won't hear it after the round next weekend. We'll hear it in the middle of October. The drama is palpable. Uh, Marvin Ryder, thanks so much. Great have, uh, having you on the program. Have a great weekend. Well, thank you. I will. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's uh, time for the Chief's Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is with us here in studio. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Uh, police Service Board meeting yesterday, so uh, we got some fresh stuff that we can talk about here. Uh, one of the main concerns, I want to get into this right off the bat, uh, in case people want to call and ask about this, uh, there is a hearing going on right now about conduct of a police officer, a very uh, controversial issue, of course, involving a city councillor. Uh, anybody who has questions about that, we have to say right up front, you're not allowed to talk about this. Yeah, how it works is uh, I designate the hearing officer, and uh, it may sound funny, but the hearing officer is me because they act in my place. So uh, we can't interact with the hearing officer. I can't speak to uh, the specifics of the case, uh, any of the evidence that's been presented, and that's pretty much entrenched in case law. Now, once the final disposition happens, uh, you know, uh, that's different in terms of the actions I have to take and things I have to do. But in the midst of, uh, I don't make comment on it. All right. But let me ask you about process, though. Yep. Okay. Because we can't get into testimony about what was said and, and cross-examinations and all that sort of stuff. But but I saw something on Twitter uh, yesterday about this, uh, suggesting that, well, they, uh, this is never going to go the way they want it to because police investigating themselves. The police are not running this operation. They're not running this investigation, this this hearing. Uh, the hearing is uh, run through uh, an external prosecutor, who is Brian Duxbury. Uh, the hearing officer is also external. He's a retired officer. But this uh, is, a, this is a, a separate entity, a separate board that actually looks after complaints. Uh, well, actually, it's OIPRD that investigated originally, uh, directed a hearing on this matter, which then, of course, I have to facilitate and set up. But, uh, uh, yes, it's the actual adjudicative body, which is the hearing itself. Uh, they call it a tribunal, and that's really out of the case law and adjudication. It's a tribunal that oversees. In some cases, they'll have three adjudicators, but often in police act hearings, it's a single adjudicator, and in this case, it's a hearing officer. Uh, we want to talk about process, because we get into investigations about, uh, about uh, police behavior. There's a number of other things that are going on here, and, and, and this kind of dovetails into the, the political realm. And I wanted to get your comments about this as well, Chief. Because I know that you've been very vocal, uh, previously Chief DeCare was very vocal about the Police Services Act and revisions and possible revisions to it. Uh, the Attorney General has talked about that. Uh, Mr. Nackby has talked about putting something together uh, for those revisions, uh, which is going to be pretty, he says, sweeping. Uh, the sand's running out of the hourglass, though, because there's going to be an election in June. Um, there's an awful lot of work that they want to get done here. Do, do you, do, in your mind, do you, you still want to see this as a priority, the Police Services Act, the revisions to it? Yeah, we do. And I think if you want the broader context, because we've had opportunity to have input with uh, Justice Tullock in his report, the overview of uh, the three oversight bodies, which of course is the special investigation unit that investigates um, uh, fatal encounters uh, with the police or serious bodily harm. 
Then you've got the OIPRD, which is a little younger, uh, the Office of the Independent Police Review Director. And lastly, the OCPC, which is the Ontario Commission on Policing. Um, so there are three adjudicative bodies. He has provided a very fulsome report. I would recommend, actually, and, and he has targeted his audience. He doesn't write it in legalese. I realize he's a judge. Uh, he's kept it uh, very... Um, approachable in terms of when you read the uh, document, you go, okay, I can understand where he's going. And he had to balance the needs of both the public, those who've been involved in uh, those encounters, the police, the legal community, the oversight bodies themselves. Part of his recommendation, what uh, our ministry is now looking at, is um, implementing what his recommendations have been. So if you kind of want to know where it's going, Justice Tulloch reports, and he does have an executive summary as well as, you know, more comprehensive document. I would recommend that. And in my view, and, I, you know, I'm not being facetious, in my view, give a very balanced approach to all the competing needs on this. We agree with uh, civilian oversight. We also agree with the need for open and transparency when you can. And we face it as well in policing where you have an investigation going on. You can't speak to certain things. However, the policing community, particularly on on, uh, SIU investigations, we think uh, that the SIU needs to come out with more so at least the public knows fundamentally what happened. Um, And we made that recommendation for years. We made it to Justice Tulloch. It's included in his report. Um, And then hopefully they're going to amend the Police Services Act uh, through our ministry and the Attorney General to implement some of those things. But on that point about SIU, Special Investigations Unit, why does it take so long? Uh, Because there's already been a a police investigation. I get that. But they, I don't know if they want to borrow from that. But, I mean, we've just had another example a couple of months ago here in Hamilton about an investigation that took an inordinate amount of time. Mm -hmm. It's bad for police. It's bad for the families. It's bad for everybody. And we agree with that. There's impact on all of those people. And, uh, again, for us, if we can get speedy resolutions, and that w- that is what Justice Tulloch clearly heard it, he advocated for more resources dedicated to both the SIU and the OIPRD. As you stated, when it languishes for so long um, and people don't know what happened, what often happens is the void is filled with conjecture or otherwise because people don't have the facts. Um, as you know, and one of our recommendations to Justice Tulloch as well was, um, we stated uh, you know, if it's a fatal encounter, we recommend that it goes to coroner's inquest because at a coroner's inquest, you have the opportunity. It's a coroner who lo- oversees it. Uh, you have the opportunity for evidence as evidence in chief, cross-examination, re-examination, so that the public gets a full accounting of what has happened and why, and that generally provides um, at least an explanation of what has happened. That's the open and transparent part. In my view, you still have to have it within that legal context because the requirements where you don't get into hearsay evidence, you have those tests to hopefully get the facts out. Did Justice Talk get specific uh, and, and prescriptive about some of these recommendations? Uh, I, I'm going to go right to probably one of the more controversial ones, and of course, and that is is uh, is is paid leave uh, for officers that are under investigation or under suspension, whatever the case might be, in various situations. I, and we know the the facts on this. Of course, Ontario is the only jurisdiction in the country that still does that. But I tell you, I, we talked about this on the program just a couple of weeks ago, and. Uh, it's uh, it's amazing, Chief, to watch the feedback that I get when we do talk about this. I, a number of officers, uh, many of whom don't want to identify themselves uh, publicly, they just get in touch with me anonymously, support the change and said, you got to do right. something. That's right. But there's a great big pushback from a bunch of others, too, that just said, leave it alone. You guys don't understand what's going on here. Uh, yeah, it, so is this is this is this recommendation from the attorney general? Is this going to settle this issue, or is it just going to start the debate? 
this topic is certainly on the agenda for the PSA amendments, Police Service Act amendments, not through Justice Tullock. Uh, it was not part of his purview and his mandate uh, by the Order and Council. However, as you know, through the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police, and specifically our jurisdiction, uh, we've created a white paper for the OACP to take forward to the government, and we've been meeting for uh, quite some time advocating for suspension without pay under certain circumstances. And I think you've hit the, the nail on the head there. It's controversial. There's the presumption of innocence, just like there is in criminal charges. Uh, but at the same time, and we know it's egregious conduct, uh, we want speedy resolutions on it. Uh, not that that prompts that, uh, but we also think in certain cases we may have to do that. And it would be, in my view, an exceptional case where that happens. I think what the trepidation is, particularly from the associations, is uh, are you going to have chiefs who just implement it, uh, you know, uh, without uh, either a criteria or willy-nilly or at their own whim? And I think there's dangers in that as well. So well, we sure, need I mean, standardization. Yeah, the, yeah, there's always this concern. Well, you know, the chief doesn't like me. If I get to, he's just going to suspend me without pay. Uh, what what process would go into place? And I understand we're getting into the hypothetical here because there is no policy yet, but there are other jurisdictions that do that. My understanding is the the consensus around the country usually is if the chief thinks that it's warranted to have somebody suspended without pay, then they have to justify why they do that to a, a, some sort of a board or agency. Uh, well, the chief in, in the hypothetical, what is being proposed, would make that decision based on criteria. And then there's uh, also built into that process an appeal process. Now, this is all hypothetical, as I say. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, you know, if it's contested, there's another oversight body that could do that, listen to the reasons for the suspension, and then make that decision. So it's not just a one point of contact, and that's absolute. The idea is to build on a process that could be reviewed. So, in other words, it would be, okay, I think officer so-and-so should be suspended without pay. I, I thereby rule that that's what's going to happen. Is it then up to that officer to appeal that? Uh, it would be in those cases, but again, we would have to provide reasons as chiefs as to why we believe, we believe the suspension is appropriate in those cases without pay. Because, of course, we still have the option to suspend with pay, uh, but in certain cases we may suspend without pay. Often involves uh, in the context of egregious criminal conduct, but you can have offenses that don't meet the criminal threshold, in my view, but are Police Service Act-based, uh, where you may suspend without pay. In the uh, civilian end of the world, we can do things like that. Uh, we can suspend without pay. Uh, we don't have that process. And part of the safeguards uh, in terms of where the legislation went previously was we're office holders. It's the nature of our business. We have to do things that some people don't like. One thing, we tell them no, which is what arrest means. Stop that and you have to come with me. We have uh, the responsibility, uh, but also the authority to deprive somebody's liberty. That's a big deal. Uh, we don't take that lightly. And the repercussions, uh, the use of deadly force, also authorized in law, comes with tremendous responsibility and accountability. So we have to be cautious about our officers as, as uh, office holders doing that work, uh, looking at the conduct. Is it related to policing? Is it off-duty conduct that might not be? You have to be uh, very thoughtful about how you render the disposition and why you would suspend either with or without pay. All right. Now, when you say the chief would have to justify that, in other words, give an explanation uh, to the individual or to the public? In other words, would that be public information? Well, it's a matter of an employee-employer relationship. So yeah. it would l largely go to the officer themselves. And then, of course, the association who re represents those officers uh, could ask for those reasons. But it's not as if it's, uh, I, I'm not going to get a story and say, officer so-and-so has been suspended without pay and here's why. This, this is a, well, it's a staffing issue. Well, there's a couple of things. If you get into the content of what the uh, allegations are, you may be jeopardizing either criminal process 
or adjudicative processes down the road. Just where we started today, which is that we have a hearing ongoing, I'm not going to speak to that hearing until such time as it's done because you may influence the outcome, so I won't speak to it. Uh, Similarly here, within the context of my obligations as uh, representing the employer, I would suspend with or without pay. I provide reasons to that person and the association. If it is reviewed, then you have a body that would review that. Well, and I guess we're all waiting to see what the Attorney General is going to do with this. Uh, I say we're kind of delving into the hypothetical here, but you'd like to think that they're going to act on this uh, before they uh, pack up and uh, get ready for the next provincial election. Uh, This is the Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gerd is here. We are going to go to your phone calls in uh, just a couple of minutes. 905-645-3221 is the phone number. The email, bkelly at 900chml.com, and the Twitter handle, at chmlbillkelly. A uh, very quick one on uh, Twitter from uh, Casey says, uh, actually, he's kind of getting into the thing with Councillor Green, and I, I say we don't really get into specifics, but he does ask, uh, would a body camera not have uh, made this whole thing moot? Um, and I know there's been a discussion about this, uh, about the use of body cameras. Some jurisdictions use them. Uh, I, I'm... I'm I'm up in the air about this. I don't know. What's what's it's the official position of the of the Hamilton Police Services on body cameras? Yeah, and again, I can't answer that because that's directly linked to the hearing that's going on, so I wouldn't provide... Uh, All right, but in a more broad-based idea about body cameras. Um, I've kind of got to separate it entirely from that hearing. Yeah. So I'm not going to answer the question, would it make it moot or not? I'm not. Uh, in terms of body-worn cameras, and we've reported to the board a number of times, and we've looked at the literature, both from uh, external universities such as Cambridge, uh, who've done extensive studies internationally. Um, they're mixed reviews, quite frankly. Uh, I guess the analogy I use, and you know, uh, I've watched a number of movies, when you think about how you, you know, you're watching a movie and you're watching the cuts, um, you've got a, a distance view, and then they do the close-up, uh, they have an extreme close-up uh, to watch the expression on the face, then it pans back to a wide view again, there's kind of this expectation with how TV is produced and how movies are done that you would see, you know, potentially something like that. Our difficulty is with the nature of where the camera is pointed, um, what it takes in, is the audio on or off, uh, is it actually directed? Because my body position may be actually canted to the left, I'm turning to the right to look something, what I see is not what the camera sees or vice versa. Our other problems with some of the cameras is the capacity of the camera may exceed the human capability so that what the camera sees is not what the person sees. So there are lots of difficulties with it. We have issues with uh, freedom of information. So if I'm in a domestic situation and I enter the premise uh, with the camera on, uh, I'm basically taping inside that residence. Well, you know, for the response, what's my authority? What else did I glean from that on the camera? Uh, What are the legal obligations about applying for warrants? How about third parties who are not involved in the particular circumstance, particularly children at domestic situations who may be present? Now I'm taping them. So there's redaction issues. There's review issues. There's uh, evidentiary issues. It's a complex area. And uh, we've seen some of the, uh, you know, the body-worn camera uh, tapes from various interactions. Uh, Sometimes when you see the two or three videotapes that were present on body-worn cameras, you go, well, that's a little different. So the one view only can be limiting. Uh, The four or five views is certainly helpful. Uh, The mixed reviews are, uh, many of the officers say, I'm glad it's there, and it certainly puts out what I said, what the person said. There you go, have a look for yourself. Um, Relative to, you know, more extended encounters, 
And I just watched, uh, for example, the shooting down at the nightclub in, in Florida yeah. and uh, saw some of the body-worn camera stuff. Boy, that's a fairly complex thing to put together after the fact because you may have 30 or 40 body-worn cameras at that particular call, both outside, which I saw, but also inside. Uh, so the evidentiary components is becoming fairly demanding for us. It is a complex area. Um, you know, relative to does it give the full version, I'd only kind of offer up kind of that movie analogy. Uh, it depends on what that director was directing at the time. Uh, for us, it's the limitations of what was it pointed at and what is taking in. Well, and as soon as you mentioned, uh, you know, if you have to start redacting some of that stuff too, the next question anybody's going to ask is, well, what else did you take out? Uh, as soon as you start editing, you open that door, don't you? You do. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Chiefs Town Hall, Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert with us here in studio to uh, take your calls, your questions. Uh, on email right now from Phil, uh, please ask the Chief, what is being done about drivers who weave and zigzag through traffic like they're in some kind of a stock car race? It's dangerous, uh, but drivers on the road are also in danger as well. Can they be charged? And if so, what is the charge, the fine, and demerit points? Thanks for the email, Phil. Chief? Yeah, so variety charge is usually stemming out of that. Obviously, speeding is usually related to that. Uh, to actually clock somebody on that, uh, even if you're following in a vehicle, would be tough. Uh, probably the charge that would apply is change lane, not in safety, if that's the case, if somebody gets cut off. Uh, I would hazard having watched this sometimes. Follow too closely could be a potential charge. Careless driving, depending on what the circumstances are. And uh, potentially even a criminal charge of dangerous driving, which uh, the threshold for that is one and reckless disregard uh, for public safety. Uh, fairly high threshold, believe it or not, in the case law in terms of what's required to substantiate because speed alone does not dictate uh, ca- uh, dangerous driving uh, nor careless driving. So to your point about that weaving in and out, uh, what is happening to the other vehicles? They have to brake. Uh, does it cause issues with them? Are they, you know, within very close range? So the officer would have a variety of charges and, of course, a variety of demerit points, usually three points for the hazardous moving, moving violation, such as change lane, not in safety, uh, six points for careless. Uh, relative to the speeding, of course, we've got some fines there as well. If it gets up to over 50 kilometers per hour over the posted zone, then you're into, you know, having the vehicle seized uh, and a suspension. So there's a variety of... Um, a variety of uh, remedies for that. Uh, on a related issue, th- uh, this is not an email, but actually a conversation I was having somebody at the football game a couple of weeks ago uh, that asked about this, uh, and it had to do with chases, high-speed chases. And we haven't seen very many. There haven't been too many of them lately, uh, but they have been in the news from time to time. Uh, and they asked at the time, uh, you know, I guess this is uh, the old idea of watching too many movies and television, saying, well, are these guys trained? Are officers trained in how to drive at high speeds? There actually is a course they take in LR for that, isn't there? Yeah, p- police vehicle operations is what it's called, but also there's uh, specific regulations that govern uh, vehicle pursuits. And so we have training on that as well. So you, this is not like <coughs> Bullet, you know, with Steve McQueen. You can't go roaring around like that. It's interesting you use that because that would flash in my mind too and having watched the movie not Best that long ago. Best car chase ever. Well, and it goes on for, I don't know, 30 minutes? It seems that way, yeah. <laughs> and if you think about the end of that, uh, the vehicle ends up careening into a gas station and blowing everything up. So it's really not the outcome we're looking for, um, even though the bad guys, so to speak, in this uh, are killed. But then you've got the public as well. You've got this inferno going on. Uh, that part of the movies is uh, not what we're looking for. So public safety guides us in those pursuits. What we don't want is uh, either the driver, for that matter, or anybody killed, particularly with the nature of the offense. If you're tra- talking about a traffic offense, 
Um, you know, the penalty of death is uh, a little extreme, in my opinion. Uh, even if it's criminal, uh, the same thing. And particularly where the rest of the public is endangered by those actions. So, uh, you know, we have very strict policy that governs those. What are the parameters? I mean, is there, is there a speed limit and you're not to exceed such and such? I mean, because you will see officers sometimes, I guess, responding to a call and, and obviously they've got the lights flashing and off they go pretty quickly. Yeah, which is not a pursuit. They're going yeah. to a destination. When you've got, you're actually following a vehicle, uh, there's all kinds of criteria you got to look at. You know, what are the weather conditions? Uh, is the driver, you know, it, it, we're talking about a youth, and then we'd have lack of experience. What's the nature of the conduct? Is somebody else endangered, for example, an impaired driver? You may have what's called a low-speed pursuit. Uh, they may drive at 40K, just not pull over. Uh, so we have um, contingencies for that and how we would block somebody and stop them because it's always guided by public safety. Uh, so you may have an impaired driving that if you let them continue on, uh, even at low speed, will continue to endanger the public. So can you do it safely? Can you stop them? And do you have alternate methods? For example, if you know who's driving the car and it's a speeding offense, all right, I'll make an application for summons, I'll deliver it another time, and they'll still face the charge if I'm able to identify who the driver is or I know who the driver is. Uh, so lots of considerations, your own driving skill, the conditions, what's the flow of traffic, weather, uh, you know, uh, volume of traffic at the time, density of traffic, are you urban or rural? Uh, there's what, all what, what kinds about of approaching intersections? Is there, what's the policy there? Are they supposed to slow down? I mean, even if, if they have to go through a red light, uh, is it the same as all emergency vehicles? Uh, the policy is, well, the statute is very clear on this. You have to come to a stop, uh, activate your lights and siren, ensure it's safe to proceed, and then you can proceed. Uh, so we've uh, faced some internal issues, shall we say, with this, where you have a sense of, well, no, I've got a clear view of the intersection. The requirements are to stop, uh, turn your lights and, and, you know, siren on go through the intersection uh, when it's safe to do so. So the statute is clear. Uh, I realize that in the movies it works a lot differently, but uh, also in the movies uh, you don't see the carnage that can happen sometimes. Uh, and, and by the way, just to finish up with the example of uh, the Steve McQueen movie Bullet, uh, don't forget Steve McQueen did his driving. He's a professionally trained driver. Right. Uh, he you know, This is a guy that raced in Le Mans and, and other races too. I mean, he, this guy knew what he was doing behind the wheel. Not everybody does. Just because you see cars going quickly on a car commercial doesn't mean you're supposed to do that. Which is another issue we could get into altogether. It's still it's one of the pet peeves I've, of I have is is they always show these commercials and they're always driving on this coastal road with winds and bends and twists and turns, and they're going about 150 kilometers an hour on this thing. And you figure no wonder people get in there and do the same stupid thing. Right. Uh, those are professionally trained drivers, and uh, most right. people around here are not. And even on the autobahn, where there are no speed limits, uh, there's things that govern the slow lane, the passing lane, uh, because if you've got a Lamborghini coming up at you at 220 kilometers per hour and you're in the curb lane, uh, you still have a requirement to make sure it's safe to pull out because you know somebody may be doing that speed. Um, relative to your, your bullet analogy, they might go through 8, 10, 12 vehicles because, yeah, it looks like it could make that jump, but no, the tire's blew and the transmission dropped and uh, all kinds of bad things happened. Uh, we'll move on, uh, but go see Bullet. Now I want to watch it again. That's, I know what I'm doing tonight as soon as I get back from the football game. Yeah. Uh, on Twitter at CHML, Bill Kelly, LTEL says, uh, please ask the chief why instead of photo radar, the police don't just continuously patrol the link and the Red Hill with unmarked cars. We use both marked and unmarked. 
uh, and uh, we supplement both our uh, patrol units in those areas plus our support services unit. Um, the reason is you do both, and you'll see it with the OPP as well, is there's a visual deterrent between, as you know, seeing officers out there patrolling. If we get compliance, that's good. Don't just want to get out there, just get the people speeding at excessive speeds. We want that too, uh, but you also want the deterrent effect. And relative to photo radar, and I've said it on this show before, I'm in support of that. I've driven jurisdictions where they had it. I remember when they had it here. Uh, for me personally, driving on the 400 series highways when they had photo radar, People drove in the speed limits. Like it was, to me, it had the intended effect. I understand uh, from a populist standpoint that people think, well, I'm paid these vehicles. And you just talked about the ads on TV. Yeah. Well, I want my car to do what it's capable of because, you know, their view is uh, I'm pretty close to, uh, you know, uh, I could drive in the, uh, you know, the races and maybe even most sport, uh, but probably not. And when you see the safety measures they take, uh, they know what they're doing, and they're very uh, safety conscious, but they're also going in the same direction generally. Uh, when we're on traveled roadways that aren't separated, you've got the potential for head-on collisions. So for me, I support photo radar. We do continue to do both marked and unmarked uh, enforcement. By the way, on a related issue, and I'm going to get to the phone calls here in just a couple of seconds, uh, one of the uh, the arguments against photo radar, and we heard this extensively, of course, back in the 90s when it was used on Ontario highways for a br- brief period of time anyway, was it actually causes accidents. They said, because people will slam on the brakes as soon as they see the uh, the officer off on the side of the road of the car. Uh, I mean, my counter to that is, well, if they're slamming on the brakes, it's because they were speeding. Well, but there's there's some leeway. I mean, if the speed limit's 100 kilometers an hour, they don't, you don't get a ticket if you're driving 105, do you? I don't know what they set the limits at when they set up the photo radar. I'd suspect that it's as you said, but I don't know that specifically. All right. Anyway, uh, it's a debate they're probably going to have here in this province. And uh, I, city council is supportive of the idea on the link in the Red Hill of putting photo radar in, too. So uh, it may happen. And that obviously is going to, I think, motivate a number of other questions once we get that. Uh, back to your calls, though. 645-3221, start 9900. Ken, thank you for holding on. Go ahead for the chief. How are you doing, chief? I'm well. That's good. That's good. i just wondering, has there ever been a study or anybody looked into the amount of charges that make it into court if they're found guilty or not guilty um how are the how are the judges of the peace now are they looked at or not looked at and what happens if you have a justice that and i know they're out there that are anti-police that no matter what evidence you give they're going to be found not guilty uh, so that responsibility falls to the Ministry of the Attorney General in terms of conviction rates and what happens with the dispositions. Uh, it's really not our job to regulate, and I understand where you're going, in terms of JPs and their conduct. That actually falls to the regional judges who oversee it, and there's also a, a head JP who oversees that as well. Um, you know, if there's there's an issue and you're aware of it, uh, that's something you'd raise up through that administration. Uh, I don't know that I'd make broad comments because there's uh, so many different JPs. Yeah. And, yes. of course, uh, you know, like any other situation, it's based on the evidence that's presented. And, uh, you know, we have our view of it as, as police and what we saw and gathered evidence. And then you have the citizens. So, you know, to me, uh, that process, and I spoke to it earlier in terms of, you know, complaint processes and the coroner's inquest. Uh, you know, the rule of law and the requirements for uh, getting at the facts and what happened, the variety of perspectives. Uh, I think the court process is a very important one. 
And, you know, having been a hearing officer myself, uh, when you listen to the evidence specifically and the witnesses and the, uh, you know, the physical evidence, uh, it's, it's a fairly onerous responsibility to make sure that you adjudicate properly. So right. uh, back to, you know, what's the regulation? It would be through uh, the Ministry of the Attorney General and those uh, oversight uh, bodies. Uh, our job is to present the evidence in court, and that's really, uh, I'm not negating the outcome. Uh, no. but, but even in cases where you have a change in case law, for example, you may have complied with all the regulations in case law up to that point. Then we have a decision comes out, the rules change. Uh, yeah. It can be very frustrating for our own people, and you're thinking, you know, boy, if I'd known that, you know, two years ago, then I would have gathered that piece too. But, uh, you know, you do the best you can to present the evidence in court. That's great. Okay, thanks very much. Have Thank you. Appreciate you it. Thanks so much, Ken. Six four five thirty two twenty one. Start nine nine hundred. Let's play word association. Marijuana. Uh, uh, this is a debate that's going on in the country. It's going on locally. City yes. Council has weighed in on this. Yeah. Uh, and I, I get the sense sometimes, Chief, that the police services right across the country are, are kind of on the outside looking in on this debate, and you're the ones that are, it's going to get thrown on your lap. Okay, guys, enforce this. And uh, I guess question one is enforce what? Well, what's the law? What's the status right now? So my word association would be to marijuana complex. <laughs> um, and the reason for that is, and as you've said, uh, the statutory requirements from the federal government have not come out yet. And I believe most recently we heard submissions uh, from Deputy Commissioner uh, Rick Barnum from the OPP in terms of, you know, if you're going to implement in, say, June and then want uh, us to be right on board by August after the July implementation date that is projected, uh, that's going to be pretty tough. There are a lot of things that flow from this particular legislation and for policing, uh, it ties into many things. Probably foremost, in my view, is, uh, you know, the public safety issue with regard to driving impaired either by drugs or alcohol. Uh, so that what are the thresholds for whatever the substance is, in this case, marijuana, and of course, uh, it's THC that's the uh, chemical component. Um, but part of the issue with uh, with uh, the drugs that are out there versus alcohol, which has been fairly well established what the level of impairments are, and most jurisdictions are between 50 milligrams to 80 milligrams per 100 milliliters of blood as a level and an indicia of impairment. But you can be convicted for impaired driving even if you didn't reach that, reach that threshold with alcohol. And of course, that's where drugs or other conditions are involved and you're impaired. So our requirements in terms of getting those kind of thresholds with drugs, let's look at an opioid user. Um, if you say, let's say, Bill, you uh, have chronic pain and have been medically prescribed, uh, high, you know, whatever the particular oxycodone or even fentanyl to address that pain issue, you may have a specific tolerance that you can deal with and you may not be impaired. Uh, if I take it as a recreational user, and I don't, uh, but if I did, uh, my level of impairment on, uh, say, five milligrams may be tremendous. So, you know, the Center for Forensic Science is looking at this in terms of, and with the experts, what is the level of impairment based on, uh, you know, uh, what the person consumed. And then when you get into multiple drugs plus alcohol, now it's getting more complex. Our drug recognition experts are trained to observe, observe the physical signs of impairment. That's why I say you can be convicted on the physical signs of impairment based on, you know, you don't have the capacity to operate a vehicle in a safe manner. And, you know, in, even in the alcohol, there's impaired driving and then there's the over 80 charge, as most people know it. Well, as I said, 80 milligrams per 100 milliliters. Two separate offenses, uh, 253A and B of the criminal code. One is impaired, one is uh, the actual alcohol content. So that's complex. 
So we we may need uh, equipment for that if they in fact and they do have roadside screening devices. None of them have been approved to my knowledge yet, and they have to be approved by under statute. Um, two cost of that equipment. Three, uh, we are amping up already our training on uh, field sobriety tests and drug recognition experts, but that requires a fair bit of extensive training. Then you get into, and I'm not even, I don't know what your time is, uh, <laughs> then you get into dispensaries. Uh, well, that's, yeah, that was my next question. Yeah, I thought I know be. that's where city council's going after right now. Right. They're saying, look, you guys have got to help us with enforcement here. Agreed. Uh, the laws, as uh, the federal laws, as you already articulated, uh, technically have not changed yet, but of course medical marijuana is allowed. There are people that are selling this stuff right now. Uh, who's allowed to, who's not, and, and, and how do you guys make that, uh, that call? That's right. So we have to work within the existing laws, and I realize there's a motion before council, uh, but until such time as the, um, the laws are changed, we have to work within both what the statutes say, but also the case law. So as you know, uh, we will often go in, and often it involves investigative steps to get the uh, evidence to then shut down, make seizures with warrants, uh, take all that stuff. Somebody opens up a new company under a new number, and you know they might be a block down the street, and here we go again. Uh, I think, and I've said this publicly at the board meeting yesterday, uh, with the Attorney General of Ontario, Minister Nackby, coming out and saying, no, we're going to run it like the LCBO. Uh, that really puts a damper on those who are looking at trying to be entrepreneurs, and I understand the entrepreneurial spirit, um, to start doing dispensaries on their own that are not regulated by the government. The positives, in my view, of that statement by Minister Nackby are, one, uh, that regulation should be done by the government. We're not chemists. Uh, you know, the THC content, how you regulate it, uh, space within the building, who gets it, that should be regulated by, it's an administrative function in my view. Our function is still to do enforcement. And now, you know, I'll speak to something I made reference to with the opioids. Uh, we're certainly for harm reduction and we support that. But part of that harm reduction is arresting those individuals who are dealing in drugs that are potentially deadly. So uh, we have an enforcement component as a, well as a wellness component to reduce the number of deaths. Part of that strategy is we still have to do enforcement to arrest those who are dealing. Those who have consumed and may overdose, well, that first priority is their health, getting the medical aid, ensuring that they get the proper care they need. And our job is, um, you know, if it's a small amount of possession, we have some changes in legislation, that's different. If I've got a key of Coke there that's laced with fentanyl, um, then I've got to do the appropriate thing. That's a different issue. So that's why you go to the word marijuana complex. Uh, the whole drug no issue wonder. is complex. <laughs> <laughs> Glad I brought it up. Yes. Uh, but we're out of time. Uh, there's so much more I wanted to talk about, but we'll have to do that in the next session. Uh, thanks as always, Chief. Great seeing you again. Thank you, Bill. And, and great questions. These are really uh, burning topics. I understand that right now. Hamilton, For all of us. Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.